Well, we had such a great non, woo, we had such a great 9:30 service. I hope you guys don't mess it up at 11. The gym was packed. It was like the Super Bowl effect, I guess. But it's a big day for a lot of people. Uh, when we'll gather around, uh, millions upon millions will gather around their TV tonight, looking forward to a brand new episode of This Is Us. I will sit with my Susan on the couch and we will cry and watch This Is Us. We're so looking forward to it. And Pink singing the national anthem and Justin Timberlake uh, doing the halftime show and probably Tom Brady walking away with some more, more hardware. I want to begin this morning with a what and a what if. So the what is, some of you heard, it's a new sermon series. It's a series in Galatians. The tagline we're giving it is that a life turned inward is a life held back. In other words, the idea stated more positively is that there is a path forward and the path forward is a path into freedom. And the path, I want to tell you at the outset, and you'll hear me repeat it, it's the path of grace and peace. Would you say that out loud? Grace and peace. Before we get to Galatians, in fact, if you're a Bible turner, you can turn there, Galatians chapter 1. We'll have it up in a moment. Before we get to Galatians, uh, let, me, let us look at what that fellow Paul wrote to some other churches uh, who are early followers of Jesus. Romans 1, 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, that those sanctified in Christ Jesus are called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, here we go, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God in Corinth, together with all of his holy people, throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. This same fellow, in writing the, those letters, wrote letters to the church at Thessalonica, to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and he began them with his salutation with what? Grace and peace. So do you want to guess how Paul might venture in as he introduces his letter to the church at Galatia. Any bright students, any luminary learners out there, anybody want to take a stab? Grace and peace. Galatians 1, let's read it. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. He talks like I do sometimes. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here he's getting serious. I, I love a leader that gets fired up and he turns it up. He cares. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed, the Greek word anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. How many parents and teachers, like for emphasis, you repeat yourself. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? 
the what this morning is a new sermon series. The what is Galatians. The what is uh, moving away from a life turned inward to a life that moves forward, that moves forward in freedom and the path. It is grace and it is peace. Grace and peace. That's the what. But here's the what if. What if you and I, what if you and I were gripped by it? What if we were so rooted and grounded, so soaked and marinated in this uh, reality of grace and peace that it flowed from our hearts that when our tongues spoke, it would be those very words, grace and peace. That before we gossiped or slandered or before evil speech or falsehood, the treachery of falsehood poured forth from your tongue, you could stop and you could say rather than that, you could say grace and peace. What if you were in the early stages of a conflict or a conversation that was about to elevate into a conflict and instead of adding to the anger, you in that moment could push the pause button and you could say the very words grace and peace. What if that person who spoke that thing seven years and three months and two days ago, not that you're counting, that thing that you still carry around with you and that has defined who that person is to you. What if you could say their name and out loud say the words grace and peace what if that person that you said you had said you could never forgive for what they've done i know i know i'm not going to push it you can't in person say grace and peace but maybe your posture could be such you can't meet them face to face and say it but maybe you could the posture toward them could be that you could say their name out loud and you could say grace and peace it could be the beginning of something you're with that friend and they're beating themselves up they're talking bad about themselves they're bringing up that past sin that they're letting define them and you know what the word says they know what the word says paul said it in romans 8 one of the great chapters in all of our theology it says there is therefore now no more condemnation but that person beating themselves speaking condemnation but you say stop i interrupt your broadcast to say to you grace and peace what if every every conversation, every interaction, what if every impulse in us could be one of grace and peace? In the early church, it says this. I'm skipping one verse, I know, but let's put up Acts 14. Acts 14, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. The, committed, the word committed there, it implies that they were giving them over to, they actually had a ceremony they had a service where they gave people over, committing them to the very grace of God. They gathered the church together. This is what the church should do. It's what we should be about. And they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, there's Sunday, and then there's the other six days. And for the church to be committed to the grace of God, yes, we gather. And as we gather, we hear reports. We interact with each other, and we hear reports of things that God and do it. I love the last phrase. They stayed there a long time with the disciples. When there is grace and peace, what do you do? You hang out. You want to be a part of it. That's a trip that's worth the destination. Grace and peace. You enjoy. You enjoy it. It's something to be savored. So the what if? What if it was a part of us? What if this wasn't ancient words on a screen from a Bible text about holy people that won't be watching the Super Bowl tonight? Not real people. But what if it became us? The Greek word for grace in the New Testament is charis. It comes from the word kairo. And there was actually um, 
a, a word used at the time, Korean, was the, the grace word that the Greeks used. And Paul had a slight variation on it. And this word grace, it means joy, pleasure, favor, acceptance, forgiveness, love to people who have done nothing to merit, earn, or deserve it. Peace is this word. We know the Hebrew word. I teach it uh, quite a bit. The peace, Hebrew word for peace is what? Shalom. And this, this Greek word for peace here has the implication of every kind of good. Erinne, every kind of good. I want that for you. And Paul wrote uh, many of these letters from chains. A few of these letters, these epistles were written from prison. Now you'll watch the Super Bowl tonight and you'll watch some commercials that will make you laugh and hopefully not buy their products, but you'll laugh anyway and talk about it and tweet about it. But let me give a commercial right now in this sermon. We pause a moment as we talk about a man in prison writing a lot of letters about grace and peace from prison. Uh, there's a prison ministry that has begun by a good friend of mine named Josh Ginn. And if you're interested in ministering to inmates in a real regular way, there's a meeting this Thursday night in the gym at 5.30. If that is interest to you, then join us. We'll, we'll put it out there again by way of social media this week. But 5.30 in the back parking lot of the gym this Thursday night, prison ministry. Paul said often in some of these letters, he said, these chains. Those two words, these chains. In other words... I'm in shackles. To be in chains, to be in shackled, is to live a life of deprivation. Basic necessities were not necessarily afforded to him, but in that moment of deprivation, he's saying, I want every kind of good to you. I want you to know joy and pleasure and favor and acceptance and forgiveness and love to all you people like me who have done nothing to merit, earn it, or deserve it. I want all these good things for you. From these chains, he writes. <clears throat> the grace. Grace is a hard concept. We struggle with the concept of grace. Don't act like you don't. Henry Cloud, one of my favorite <clears throat> psychologists and writers, he says that all of us grow up probably in a green light home or a red light home. And if you grew up in a green light home, you know, th there's a lot of yeses and there's a lot of happiness and not a lot of rules. And a red light home was no, there's stern reprimands and strong rebukes and just a lot of rules and such. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, but whether you were green light or red light, we all just in so many ways misunderstand grace. If you're a note taker on the left side of the page um, at the top, um, write, write this word. Just Well, let me skip that. We'll go back to it in just a second. But we in, in, in understanding of grace, there's a lot of us that are just very, um, shall we say, down and out about it. So let's jump into it. Write the word pitiful or pity on the left side. And then on the other side, write the word proud. And the word pity or pitiful, the implications there is, woe is me. I am not worthy. Hey, preacher, good message on Super Bowl Sunday to most people. But man, you don't know what I've done. I'm in really deep and I've done some stuff. And if I even say the words of the evil, well, I just can't. It brings it up. And I am not worthy. I love the language of the psalmist in one place. He says, Lord, you're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I love that because I know what sin does to me. And I know what it does to you. And I know when someone is visiting with me and it has got the best of them. And they're experiencing condemnation for the wrong that they have done. And their head is down. The posture is not good. And the psalmist is saying, you're the lifter of my head. But some of us are pitiful. There's pity, and it's we're not worthy. But for a lot of us, uh, and let me step back here on this side of pitiful, there are critics and skeptics of Christianity. Do you know? 
If you're one of them, we welcome you here today. Continue to ask questions. Continue to probe. But some people say, well, this whole, guilt, this whole grace thing, it's just a coping mechanism for weak Christians to deal with their guilt. Just a coping mechanism for weak Christians to deal with their guilt. It's sort of a, a crutch. There are folks who are, who are proud, who don't sense their need, who don't see their need for grace. Years ago, a couple was visiting our church, and we would see the wife a lot and rarely see the husband. I'm proud of folks who, um, single folks who come by themselves and married folks, only one of you, you come. There's courage in that. Can I tell you that we love you and we're proud of you for doing that? And this uh, man, he came on Easter, he came another time, and I could, I could look at him and tell that he wasn't uh, kind of in my wavelength. I, I'm a sensitive person, kind of took it personally. One night we saw them out at, at a restaurant. And his wife came over to speak to my wife and I, and we uh, were looking over at him, the three of us talking about him right there as he looked at us, and it kind of felt like we were Christians judging him, you know. So I, uh, I smiled and I waved, and he waved and didn't smile. Skeptical, cynical guy. But not long after that episode, at the, that moment at the restaurant, we were together, and he shared some of his skepticism. And he said, this, this idea of sin and original sin, I mean, are you kidding me? that God would give us a standard that no one can meet and then say everybody's a sinner. And so you want me to come to your church, or any church for that matter, and listen to you, the preacher, stand up there under the bright lights and say, you're all sinners. That's like setting up a target out of range and blaming the shooter for not being able to hit it. So, the volley was served. I was ready to retort. I was gathering myself and getting my impressive theological argument about the origins of sin and Adam and Eve and ancestral sin and imputation and the wife interrupts me and she looks at him and she says do you think it's okay do you think it's okay to get drunk and scream at your spouse do you think it's okay to lie about your sales report do you think it's okay to tell your grandkids that you'll be at their game or their recital or their concert and then you don't show up do you think it's okay? And she asked a series of a few more very indicting questions. And then she said, you say God's standards can't be met. You can't even meet your own standards. Now, a few of you may be tracking with me, but I thought, wow, I am humbled in this moment because none of my arguments could top that. You see, that's what, that's what I want you to see about sin. It's not something high and lifted up and lofty and arbitrary from a mean, capricious God. It's you. Listen, listen. we do not meet our own standards. The psalmist prayed this prayer and it convicts me. Psalm 1912. You ever read this? But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Leave, leave that up. That's, that's philosophical. Some of you want to go deep. Go deep on that. Like, go really deep on this verse and get to the bottom as deep as you can. We're so worried that someone will deceive us. Man, I don't want somebody to deceive me. But more often times than not, it's you deceiving yourself. And that, that phrase, forgive my hidden faults, it can get the best of me sometimes. In other words, what it's saying to me is I could have treachery. I could have greed. I could have lust, I could have anger and wrath and malice, and I could be living for myself, and those things could be resident in me, and I don't even know it. I'm not 
aware of it. If there's one trait I want to grow in, it's self-awareness. How about you? And here the psalmist is saying, there are so many things, and Lord, I need to discern them, and I need to be forgiven for them. In Matthew chapter 11, this is the verse, put it up, this is the verse that verse says that lead up to the famous, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, to the people that were on a treadmill of performance. Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What, what's he saying here? In Jesus' day, what's the pipe and what's, what's the dirge? A lot of you know where I went to college. Some of you say I mention it too much from the stage. Uh, I disagree. But anyway, uh, I went last September um, to an Ole Miss, Georgia football game. I went to Oxford. I'm a pastor for all the people. And it was great. Ole Miss just crushed, Ole Miss crushed Georgia. Who would have thought that the very next year they'd be playing Alabama for the national championship? So in Oxford, I'm with my friends Charles Waterloo and Billy Mink. And there we are. And we're at this Georgia game. And they were playing uh, Pipe It Up, Pipe It Up. It was a rap song. And I'm like, what, Pipe It Up? What's Pipe It Up? I'm, I'm getting too old. But I looked at the Ole Miss student section. Apparently, they understood Pipe It Up. Now listen, in Jesus' day, when they piped it up, when they played the pipe, it was a cue to dance. To shake your groove thing, to get after it. It was used in festive occasions, particularly in weddings. And similarly, I mean, the word dirge, say that out loud, dirge. Don't go to sleep, say dirge out loud. Look at someone and say dirge. Like everything about that just sounds bad, right? That's when, when they sang a dirge, it was, it was a cue for people, even if they were Pavlov's dogs, it was a cue for people to mourn. And what is Jesus saying? It is not an indictment on the ministry of John the Baptist. What he is saying here is the people, these good and moral people, refuse to repent. They refuse to acknowledge that they need grace and that they need peace. They're missing their cues. A lot of life is knowing your cue. What's next? How do you respond? And Jesus is saying they're missing it. They don't know when to rejoice, sing and dance. They don't know when to mourn. They've missed it. And what he's saying is deeper than that. They're missing the heart of the gospel. They're good and they're moral people, but they're missing. Luke 7, 37, let me put this up quickly. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, this is a woman in adultery. This is the juicy, fleshly sins that we talk about. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, this woman in Luke 7 broke the jar of alabaster perfume. And the disciples were judging, oh, you know, give that money to the poor. And Jesus is altering their category. And he says this great phrase that's at the heart of the gospel, but he is forgiven little, loves little. Look at me for a second. Jesus never gave people false reassurance. Not once does Jesus tell them that their sin is not serious, not one time. But Jesus, he talks about sin being, sin enters and sin fractures, and it is very serious. But his forgiveness is so great. So let me be real, uncomfortably real. I don't want to stoke the flames of your imagination, but years ago I did something wrong. And when I did this wrong thing, I was like, oh, so I want to hide this thing that nobody will know. And then I found out that somebody did know the wrong thing that I did. And I was so grateful for their response. I'm, I'm like that. I'm like her. My sins are many. And it was found out and I was, it was brought to my attention and the, he challenged me. He challenged me to be the best 
Christ follower I can be. And his words and his love were meant to not harm me, but to help me. What a gift that was so long ago. Recently, I was driving by somewhere and I saw someone just stealing a piece of furniture. And I knew about the building, I knew about the place, I knew about the person. I knew that he was working a a few part-time jobs and trying to feed a family. And at first I was mad. I'm like, you're doing this after hours when no one will see and look what you're doing. And I was, there's a part of me that riled up. And then I remembered when my sin was found out and when grace was shown to me. And that so long ago has helped form me and that helps me today lead and love and pastor and work with people. Aren't you glad that your sins have been forgiven? Aren't you glad that grace and peace abound? And for us, it is so important to live that way. When you know that you've been forgiven, you will love much. And that's the gospel. Ephesians 2, I bet a lot of us have heard this. The 9.30, they're our most godly crowd. They, could all, they all have it memorized, but you 11 o'clockers, we'll throw it out there. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and th- this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. A man named Joe DiMaggio, a great New York Yankee, was a hero on the baseball diamond. And he also was a hero, a real hero, for leaving that and serving his country in war in World War II. And he came back, this is chronicled famously in sports history, and Joe DiMaggio came back and they were like, man, this is going to be quite a welcome at Yankee Stadium. Like, we need to allot for it. So the plan was to have him come out before the game started to kind of get that out of the, the fan system and out of his systems and the nerves and everything. But what a welcome it was. He was a center fielder, but he went out to... to home plate and there thousands stood up it was a standing ovation on his way Joe DiMaggio grabbed his young son named Joe DiMaggio Jr. you've seen uh, athletes do this Uh, a lot of Saints fans who aren't playing tonight but Drew Brees when he did win a Super Bowl remember he picked up his young son and held him up well Joe DiMaggio did this in his home his return home he holds his son and the crowd is all chanting Joe 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 And Joe DiMaggio says that his little boy looked up at him and said, Dad, they're chanting my name. They're chanting my name. And little Joe DiMaggio Jr. that day in that moment committed spiritual plagiarism where he took credit for what someone else had done for him. And that is, in an adult, it's pride. And pride, can I tell you, every time misses grace. We think that pride is a good thing, fellas in particular, there's, there's us, a whole gender of people on planet Earth that think swag and confidence and strutting our stuff and touting who we are is a really good thing. But pride resists grace. It's a serious thing. It's cute in that story of Joe DiMaggio Jr., but it's not cute in my life or yours. And pride is so serious that it got Satan evicted from heaven and Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. And it led Israel into exile and it nailed Jesus to the cross. And it will cause you to miss these gifts of grace and peace. Pride. Pride. I want you note takers beside the the words that you've written. Pity on one side and pride on the other. To write the phrase weight of performance on the left side of the page. Weight of performance. And then on the other side contrast that with the way of grace. 
are you hearing me? Weight as in what you lift. The weight of performance versus the way of grace. When I was a little boy, I saw what I consider to be a life-changing movie. Chariots of Fire. And there's a runner, not the name of it, there's a runner, and there's a scene where this runner is thinking about his Olympic race. And man, adrenaline and just everything is released and kicking in him. There's a scene where he tells a couple of his friends, he says, I'm, I'm going to be at that start line and I'm going to raise my eyes and look a quarter down knowing that I have just 10 seconds to justify my existence. And that scene, when I remember when I was just a little boy watching, I thought, man, what if he doesn't win? And now here I am, a man, all these years later, and I think back to it and I think, what if he doesn't win or what if he wins? And the win wears off. And some of you are athletes, you're coaches, I see you. You know that the win always wears off. Always, every single time. And so there's this weight of performance that's not grace. It doesn't understand joy and pleasure and favor, acceptance, forgiveness, and love to those who've done nothing to merit, earn, and deserve it. Nope, not here. It's a weight of performance. There's a metro area, a certain school district in a metro area that back in 1966, which is 51 years ago, uh, that's easy math for me, 51 years ago. And in this, uh, in this place, they learned that their high school seniors, the average, uh, the, the number of students who had an A GPA, it was 16% of the school district. 16% in 1966. The latest statistics in 2015, same metro area, same school district, what do you think that number has done? Any guesses? It has risen to 63%. That's 150% growth rate in GPA. But I wonder if happiness has gone up 150%. Now I'm just going to hazard a guess and tell you no. I'm just going to hazard a guess and tell you that the weight of performance, I mean, do some of you know this? Some of you, I mean, some of you know the weight of performance that these kids are under today. And in our own way, we're climbing a ladder, and that's what this weight of performance is. It's a, it's a ladder climb where we're trying to climb higher. We're trying to run faster. We're looking down at something in front of us, and we're saying, I have blank many lonely seconds or minutes or days to justify my existence. And man, we're losing sleep and popping pills and we're anxious and depressed. Thinking about and committing suicide at rates that are unprecedented. I watched our very own Maggie Wade this week talk about the statistics on that. I was blown away. The pressure that these kids feel today. Parents, are you listening? Teachers, are you listening? There's this weight of performance, and it's contrasted by the weight of grace. If you picture a ladder and people climbing to perform, picture another ladder of someone who's climbed down to us. There is this way. It's a way of grace. Now, real quickly, as we turn toward home today, if your Bible is open, you can look down at verse 6, and it says, Paul is astonished. Now, why is he astonished? Sometimes when I say, I'm astonished, that's a good thing. But sometimes I'm astonished and it's a bad thing. And here Paul is a leader who's fired up. Now this is, you know, modern day Turkey planted churches here. 
Those churches were planting other churches. He left. He was in other cities. He was writing back to them, and his problem with them was the following. By the way, sometimes grace confronts, okay? Sometimes love does this very thing. He's later going to talk about in Galatians 5 what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Gentleness is strength under control. I think Paul has control here. It's not an out-of-control anger, but he's writing and saying, I am astonished because you are what? You're quickly deserting and you're turning away from the gospel, the, the real gospel. It's not even a gospel at all. When I was a college freshman, I went to Mexico, the Baja area of Mexico, south of Southern California, and on the way up to San Diego, we went to Tijuana. Have you ever been to Tijuana? Maybe you shouldn't answer that question in church. But if you've been to the marketplace in Tijuana, you know that it is festive and it's, it's really, it's wild and out of control. And you can buy name brand articles at knockoff prices. And when I was a 19-year-old college freshman, 18 to 19-year-old, I bought some Oakley sunglasses and a Rolex watch. And I was so proud to go back. I remember, I remember being reunited with my roommates and just bragging on my stuff, man. I was just, I had some stuff and some bling, multiple Oakleys and a Rolex. And that Rolex, just in a matter of a couple of months, it stopped working. The band broke, and I swear my wrist was a little bit green. And it cost me $7. Now, Paul is saying there is a real gospel and a fake gospel. And the fake gospel is worth $7. And it's going to break. And what burdened his heart is that they were turning away from the real gospel. They were called Judaizers. I know one of our small groups at Fondren Church has recently studied Galatians. I hope they'll still come to church during this series, but they circled up and studied Galatians. They probably learned about the Judaizers. These were a group of people, particularly men, who were leaders, and they, they would say the right things because truth is that way, or distorted truth is that way. You got a little bit of truth. You might have a lot of truth, but you're adding to it, and they were adding to it. They were saying the right thing. Yeah, yeah, it's Jesus. The gospel is Jesus, but these customs, these dietary laws, don't eat pulled pork sandwich. You must be circumcised, men, as adult men, without anesthetics. A lot of jokes I could say here, but none would be appropriate. But Paul is saying, hey, you're adding to this. You're adding to Jesus. And I want to share with you this morning as we set the tone for Galatians and these weeks ahead, I want to share with you what I learned long ago. Jesus, this a little thing here, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything is is nothing when you add to it it's null and void it's unnecessary it's jesus that we need this gospel of grace and peace similarly you can say this jesus plus nothing equals everything how do you know what's real and what's fake uh at the 9 30 i mentioned this but i did a, i looked up synonyms for the word fake and i was stunned by how many words there are not just synonyms for the word fake but how many common synonyms there are for the word fake look it up uh, later and you'll see but there common said there's so many words that we use every day that are synonymous with the word fake and that speaks to me it says to me that we really hate fake that we don't want fake that we want what is real and that's galatians you can turn inward you can turn backwards the judaizers judaizers want you to go backwards into deeper and darker religious customs and rituals but i want you to move forward in jesus with grace and with peace and you don't even have to work for it and notice what paul says in verse 10 we close with that verse it is a life verse for me 
in high school. I read Galatians, was challenged to memorize it, and I wrote in Galatians 1.10, I wrote two words that I would love for you to write down now. If you have an open Bible, I would like, love you, for you to write these two words, whose approval. It's a question, whose approval. And Paul is really crisp and clear and tight on this one. He's saying that you can live for Christ or you can live for man. So forget Galatia, modern-day Turkey, all those years ago, just for a second, and think about today. Can I ask you today, have we gotten as a culture any better when it comes to people-pleasing? Have we advanced any further? It is a, it's AA in its own right, affirmation and approval. I'm seeking affirmation and approval. And if, if your answer to whose approval is man's approval, people-pleasing, then you are in a prison. And it is a drug in a prison. Because the harder you seek approval and affirmation, the harder it is to satisfy. You won't be able to. There is one who says to us, grace, charis, joy, pleasure, favor, acceptance, forgiveness, love. And no, you and I, we've done nothing to merit, earn it, or deserve it. But it's ours. In an age of social media, how are we doing when it comes to people pleasing and seeking approval and affirmation? Picture that person, not you, we don't want to make it personal, but picture that person they post, and when they post, they elevate your envy level. Because they post about the vacation of a lifetime. But they never post about the trouble they're in, the average meal they're eating, or the bad day they're having. You see, social media for us, it's a reality show where we can be the star. Where the proverbial camera is always on our good side. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me, and look, I've got it, you've got it. It could be a fault, it could even be a hidden fault for some of us. And Jesus contrasts that, look at me, look at me, by saying this in Matthew 5, a lot of you heard it, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Never thought about this before, I memorized that verse when I was a kid, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. I never thought about this, the order, light comes before good deeds. You see, that's the gospel. I don't do a bunch of good deeds in order to move out of darkness and to see a light, but light shines. And then I respond to that light with my good deeds, and then who gets the glory? No spiritual plagiarism. I'm not making anything up. I'm not living on someone else's. Pride resists grace, but this is saying... God, may you be given the glory. Would you pray with me?